0: Thank you. Picture this. As the contenders for the White House line up, there's a shadowy figure lurking behind the scenes, influencing our elections in ways that defy transparency and defy accountability. What's its name? Soft money. Soft money is the political dark art's secret weapon. It's the cash that skirts the rules and sidesteps campaign finance laws, and it's already leaving its mark on the race for the highest office in the land. You see, We believe in transparency and accountability when it comes to our elections. We believe that voters have the right to know who's pulling the strings and who's trying to sway their votes. But when candidates start bolstering their campaigns with soft money, it's like a fog rolling in, obscuring the truth and drowning out the voices of ordinary citizens. But how did we get here? Well, before the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, candidates and political parties used to raise money through loopholes in state and local laws, skirting the federal regulations designed to keep our elections clean and fair. The Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act was supposed to put an end to all of this. It said no more. Federal candidates were told you can't raise or spend funds that you don't play by the, that don't play by the federal rules. But fast forward to today, and we find that some candidates in the 2024 race are still playing fast and loose with these rules. And who's been asleep at the wheel allowing this to happen? the Federal Election Commission, that's who. Their lax enforcement of the laws banning soft money has given it the chance to worm its way into our elections. And it doesn't stop there. Ever since the Citizens United decision unleashed the power of super PACs in 2010, nearly every presidential candidate has had one by their side, often supported by wealthy special interests. But now these super PACs are being used to funnel illegal soft money into our federal elections like a Trojan horse at the gates of our democracy. Just take former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, for instance. They've openly ignored the laws against soft money, transferring millions from their PACs to super PACs, supporting their campaigns. It's a bold and blatant violation, and it's happening right under our noses. We've got eye-popping numbers from the world of campaign finance. Super PACs, those behemoths of political spending, are showing their financial muscle in the 2024 presidential race already. As of August of this year, 2023, Never Back Down, the Super PAC backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has entered the second half of the year with a staggering $96.8 million in its war chest. You heard correctly, $96.8 million, which is roughly three times more than the pro-Trump group MAGA Incorporated had in its campaign account. And where does much of the Never Back Down's Super PAC's capital come from? It flows from Desantis's Florida political committee, but they're not alone in raising significant amounts of money. Trust in the Mission PAC supporting South Carolina Senator Tim Scott pulled in nearly twenty million dollars, thanks in part to support from wealthy business leaders. SFA Fund Incorporated, the Super PAC backing former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, reported a hefty eighteen point seven million dollars. And Best of America PAC supporting North Dakota, North Dakota Governor. Doug Burgum hauled in $11 million fueled by a substantial $2 million donation from one of Burgum's family members. Campaign finance has, as always, is a battleground of its own, and it's evolving. But we're not just here to talk numbers. We're here to explore the impact of these financial juggernauts on our democracy and, more importantly, to discuss the ongoing legal efforts to address them. There's hope on the horizon. The Campaign Legal Center and NRDC Action Votes are fighting back, They filed complaints with the FEC against Trump and DeSantis, saying enough is enough. Our campaign finance laws were created to protect us against corruption, to ensure transparency, and to keep our democracy clean. But now as we prepare to cast our ballots in 2024, it's the time for the FEC to step up and enforce these laws with vigor. It's time to send a message to candidates that they'll be held accountable for their actions. And joining me today again for an exclusive one-on-one discussion on this pressing issue is none other and Harvard Law professor, and founder of the Equal Citizens uh, Organization, and author of the book, They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Lawrence Lessig. Professor Lessig, thanks for being a part of today's episode, episode 118 of The Political Mike.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me again.
0: So, Professor Lessig, let me open up the discussion by asking you, um, you know, you've been a vocal advocate for campaign finance reform, and you have even founded the Equal Citizens Organization to address these, this, this pressing issue. Given the recent developments with Never Back Down, the super PAC supporting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' activities in the 2024 campaign, um, how do you see this affecting the landscape of campaign finance and the influence of super PACs?
1: Well, it's just the most extreme. And we're gonna see the problem grow even more as we get into the 2024 general election. Uh, And that's because political operatives realize the simplest way to raise the money they need to run their campaigns is to appeal to a very small number of super wealthy people to contribute to these super PACs. That's the dynamic super PACs create, shrinking the number of donors so that it's at a very small number of Americans, 180 American families, that basically control who gets to run in our political system. Now, you know that's a very different concern from the concern sometimes expressed, which is that there's too much money in politics. I, I don't know how much money there should be in politics, but what I do know is it shouldn't come from 140, 180 families. If you had a million people or 10 million people send in $10 to uh, Ron DeSantis's campaign, I'd say more power to him. That's great. That's what democracy is. But when you have a handful of people turning over tens and 20 and hundreds of millions of dollars to these candidates, it is the most extreme form of corruption we could imagine. And there's no reason it, it should be allowed or required under our political system.
0: This same organization, Never Back Down, um, the, the, the super PAC backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign has ceased its door knocking operations in Nevada. Which is a key early nominating contest, and it also ceased its door-knocking operations in California, a delegate-rich Super Tuesday state. Uh, they added that in, you know, the weeks leading up to um, September, uh, the, the, in, you know, they added that in, you know, the recent weeks, the group um, also ended its field operations in North Carolina and Texas, two additional states that vote on Super Tuesday. In March never back down pitched a wide-ranging canvassing effort throughout the early nominating states as the centerpiece of its effort to help boost the Florida governor in the primary, even letting reporters inside its door-knocking boot camp in Iowa, where it trained hundreds of canvassers. The PAC planned to spend $100 million on the effort. Um, the decision to fold uh, its door-knocking operations uh, you know, coincides with DeSantis' rough summer, which had featured him struggling to gain traction among the GOP um, base with the front runner, former President Donald Trump, sucking all of the oxygen out of the room. Um, now, of course, he launched his campaign in May. We're in September now. We've had one presidential debate so far, and that debate has not done much to, 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 to bolster DeSantis' standing in the polls. Um, when we look at this decision uh, by Never Back Down to halt its door-knocking operations and shift focus to advertising, um, you know, it raises questions about the role of money in politics. How does this reflect the current state, in your view, of campaign finances, uh, campaign financing in the United States? And what reforms do you believe are necessary to address these issues?
1: Well, we have to separate the particular issue of Ron DeSantis from the general issue of super PACs. Um, Look, Ron DeSantis is a terribly weak candidate. It's astonishing to me that people thought um, that he was going to be the second coming, somehow overcoming Donald Trump, because he has none of the characteristics the, that appeal to the most important part of Donald Trump's base, which is an authentic anti-politician stance. He's nothing more than a politician, and not a very good one at that. So, th- so it's it's clear that um, Never Back Down is going to have to back down in its support uh, of Ron DeSantis because he's just not going to be the nominee. Instead, what we saw in that debate was, you know, another businessman outsider, much better than Donald Trump in his ability to debate and engage, who captured people's attention. And and I think that's the dynamic you're going to see in the substance of the Republican Party. But regardless of who the party nominates, both that side and on the Democratic side, this is no difference. Um, both sides are going to deploy the strategy of raising unbelievable amounts of money from a tiny group of super wealthy people to fund their campaigns. Because that's what makes sense in the in the business model of uh, politics given super PACs. So the reform that's needed is to end super PACs. Now, most people think that's impossible. It requires an amendment to the Constitution to overturn Citizens United. And that's just wrong, because the United States Supreme Court has never considered the question of whether super PACs are required by our Constitution. It was a lower federal court in 2010 in the D.C. Circuit in a case called Speech Now Versus FEC that made a really a colossal blunder in saying that Citizens United meant that super PACs were mandated by James Madison's First Amendment. But as people have recognized for many years, but now we're finally pulling together the coalition necessary to achieve some victory on this question, that was just a two plus two equals five mistake. Um, and once we can make it clear it was a mistake and I'm hopeful through um, an initiative we hope to be triggering in Maine to be able to get this issue before the United States Supreme Court. By 2026, the United States Supreme Court will say, hey, we never said this. We, and it's perfectly clear from our own jurisprudence that there's no reason why states and the federal government can't limit contributions to independent political action committees. And if that happens, then this whole game of super, super PAC politics disappears. And we go back to not a perfect game, but certainly a much better game, where candidates are working hard to raise money from millions of people, not tens of people. And when you've got to raise money from millions of people, the things you talk about, the things you care about, the things you fight about, turn out to be the sort of things that most people care about and want to talk about and want to fight about, as opposed to the few things that your super billionaires want you to take up because they're going to be funding your campaign.
0: In California, the state Republican Party late last month, in August, changed the delegate allocation rules and a change that was backed by the Trump campaign and may make the state less competitive in March. And, and the Los Angeles Times reported on this. Previously, delegates were awarded by congressional district. Under the new rules, a candidate who wins more than 50 percent of the vote will take all of the 169 delegates the most of any state in the nation. Um, And if no candidate hits 50%, the delegates will be awarded proportionally, but based on a statewide vote, not by a congressional district. Now, I want to ask you, Professor Lessig, um, the recent changes in delegate allocation rules in California, of course, um, they were supported by Trump, but they raised concerns about fairness. How can campaign finance reform address the influence of powerful individuals or groups on state party decisions and rules?
1: Well, you know, that decision, it's interesting to think about how that decision um, is similar to the decision that almost all states, all but two states, have made in allocating electoral votes. You know, so in the system for allocating electoral votes, we have winner-take-all. Not quite as, um, the California strict system is not quite as strict as the winner-take-all for the electoral college because the California system is conditioned on getting a majority. You have to get a majority before you get all the delegates. Um, in, but in all but two states in the United States, you just have to get a plurality and you get all the delegates or all the electoral votes from that state. And what we know that does is it makes all but the swing states irrelevant in presidential elections. Nobody's gonna waste any time campaigning in Kentucky or in California or in Massachusetts because those states are absolutely determined. So it weakens political competition. And that's obviously what Donald Trump was pushing for in California to weaken political competition, because if he, because if it's clear he's going to get the majority of the vote, which when you have a field of 200 people, it's not hard to get the majority <laughs> when you're the clear front runner like that. Um, that, that means that um, they're going to have less competition out there. Now, I don't know whether that decision was driven by money. Um, And I think that's why it's important to recognize we've got a lot of problems in the American political system. Um, But the question is not um, whether, uh, uh, whether every decision is a problem of money. It's whether fixing the money problem is necessary before you can fix any of these other problems. And I think it is. Because if you don't have a political system where your power comes from The many people you can rally, whether from votes or from money, then we don't have a democratic system. If we have a system where your power comes from the fact that you're able to rally a handful of billionaires, that means we have not a democracy, but the worst form of plutocracy. Um, And obviously, we're seeing that in many, many parts of the country. And California is a very good example of that.
0: Alabama has also gained a lot of attention. It's once again appealing to the United States Supreme court, a lower um, a lower court ruling that found the state's map of congressional election districts likely violates the voting rights act by weakening black voters power. And the extraordinary move comes after a panel of three judges, three federal judges struck down Alabama's latest congressional redistricting plan for not following their court order to comply with the landmark civil rights law in um, the court filing, the state says, it plans to formally ask the country's highest court Thursday to put a pause on the ruling. And it's unclear whether the Supreme Court, which upheld the lower court's earlier order about three months ago, is open to revisiting a case that has become a vehicle for not only testing the conservative justice's appetite for undoing the, the court's past rulings on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but also helping to determine whether uh, which party controls the next U.S. House representatives. In your view, with so much hanging in the balance on such a slim margin, um, what role does campaign finance reform play in the whole battle over gerrymandering? Um, Would campaign finance reform, in your view, be a solution to mitigate the likelihood of situations like the redistricting of Alabama's congressional map across the country?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, what's happened in Alabama is really the consequence of the Supreme Court signaling that it's willing to upend all sorts of established uh, political and constitutional doctrine. And you have litigators across the country, which are just pitching cases to the court to give them a chance to redo constitutional law and the law uh, affecting voting rights. Um, And it's a little bit of a game of chicken going on in, in Alabama because the refusal to do what the court told it it must do to create a um, majority black district um, um, to to respond to the um, demographics, the actual demographics uh, and historical discrimination in the state um, was quite extraordinary. It really surprised many of us um, that the three-judge panel slapped them down very aggressively was uh, an important step. I do not think the Supreme Court is going to step in and undo what they did before. I think they don't want to they don't want to be encouraging this kind of um, this kind of uh, resistance to the existence of the law. there's so there's just so many revolutions you can run at the same time. I think the court's got enough of them uh, on the table right now. But it does raise a more general question, I think, as your question nicely puts it, of the relationship between gerrymandering and campaign finance reform. And I, I think we need to recognize um, that you know we, the democracy we have is a very sick patient and it has Many different diseases. Um, and we've got to think of what's the what's the order of um, um, treatment that this sick patient needs. Um, and some of them are going to be urgent and acute, and some of them are going to be more systematic, but but we've got to pick the ones that are most important and address them directly. Now, obviously, I think that we've seen the horrible consequence of especially racial gerry- gerrymandering in in the South, and there's no reason um, to, to slow down the push to address that. Um, and actually, we've seen nationally um, states step up and try to deal with the problems of partisan gerrymandering. Um, and it, 2020 turned out to be a much less uh, problematic map drawing cycle than 2010 was. Um, and that's, that's good progress. But what is no different in, uh, in 2020, I'd say, is much worse in 2020 versus 2010, is money. Because in 2010 there was no super the super PAC decision was decided uh, in March of 2010. but you didn't really have serious numbers of super PACs in 2010. Um, but now they've become the dominant form of political spending. Um, and so we've 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 gone way, way back on the money and politics issue in the last 10 years, whereas we've gone forward on the gerrymandering issue. So I wish my Brothers, well, in their fight against gerrymandering, I think it's an important fight to wage. Um, but I think that we've got to rally people back to the to this root cause, this root cause to not just political distortion, um, but governing distortion. You know, because with money, the the problem doesn't happen on a single day. It's not like on election day, the corrupting influence of money is over. Because after election day. Every single candidate for federal office realizes the very next day they need to be back on the phone raising money. And what that means is that they're constantly thinking about how can they act so as to make it easier to raise money. Uh, And the same thing happens at the level of the presidency, like they're deciding which policies am I going to pursue based on how it's going to affect my ability as a candidate next time around to raise money. And this dynamic is the most corrupting and cor- corrosive part of American politics throughout American politics. So we've got to rally to fix this first, not because money is the most important problem. I mean, I think climate is the most important problem, but you, know, you might have a different view of the most important problem. We can, we can agree that we have different views of the most important problem, but we should all be able to agree that money is the first problem. If we don't fix money, we don't fix anything else after that. Uh, and so I think that the democracy reform movements needs to step up and recognize this is the issue we must fix first. And if we fix this, then education and climate and infrastructure and immigration and every other issue that, that drives people crazy at least will be easier to address than it is right now.
0: If you were advising the legal teams involved in the case of, uh in Alabama. How might campaign finance reform arguments be integrated into the legal strategy to address voting rights violations and gerrymandering?
1: Well, unfortunately, I I know what the arguments are right now, and they are arguments that exploit the corrupted system that we've got right now on both sides. Um, So the arguments in favor of um, Alabama um, would be arguments about rallying The conservative view and the money behind the conservative view to support um, radical reform of american civil rights law Um, that's been the objective of part of the conservative movement for the last 40 years and now they're in a position to actually deliver on it because of the extraordinary number of federal judges that have been appointed um, uh, with the backing of the most extreme and wealthiest parts of the conservative movement, so so money would be exploited there uh, in the name of um, uh, 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 of uh, supporting the anti-equality result that uh, that Alabama embraced. But money would be uh, rallied on the other side as well, because as you pointed out, Mike, um, because of the close uh, rate, uh, difference between the majority and the minority in the House, this seat could be. Uh, critical in flipping control of Congress from the Republicans, the House from the Republicans to the Democrats. So you can be damn sure that the Democrats are going to be raising tons of money around the country to help support what's uh, their fight in Alabama, because that fight in Alabama might make it easier to, to regain control of Congress. So, you know, we have to realize that the people inside the system use the system to benefit themselves and their party. And why would we expect them to do any different? They're not, they're not angels. They're just politicians trying to get along with what they have. So we can't rely on them alone to fix the system. They're not in the business of fixing the system. They're in the business of getting elected. Um, and so we need to bring pressure from the outside onto the system to get them to make the changes that would give us a democracy that we could be confident in. And if we had those changes, It's not that gerrymandering will go away as a problem, um, but it will go away as a problem that just amplifies or magnifies the corrupting problem of money.
0: You know, it's interesting to note that some of the biggest donors uh, to Trump's super PACs in the 2020 presidential campaign are now contributing to his primary rivals. What does this shift in donor support signal about the evolving dynamics of campaign financing and how does it tie into your work to reform the campaign finance system?
1: Well, I think many of these donors, um you know, obviously, wealthy people are not typically stupid people. Um, so they um uh, recognize kind of the writing on the wall that, however uh, beloved Donald Trump is by his base, he's not going to be reelected President of the United States because he has so alienated the independence in America. And he is so terrified Democrats. So I think um, what they realize is if they want a Republican Party uh, victory at the pres- level of the presidency and certainly down ballot, um, they need to find a different candidate. Now, the problem is they don't have a different candidate. They don't have somebody who's going to unify and and make the party seem um, something other than Uh, the crazy race-baiting party that many people see it to be right now. People thought DeSantis was going to be that. But again, as I said, I have no understanding why anybody believed that. But that was the great hope they had. Um, But now um, I think many of them are are in some sense thinking, well, how do we even just cut our losses here? Um, Because I think that they see a a Trump candidacy as a catastrophic loss for the Republican Party. Um, And by contrast, I think... Many Democrats see a Trump candidacy as an enormous potential for the Democratic Party. Now, this is all assuming something that, you know, is not easily assumed, that there's no issue with Joe Biden going into this next election. You know, if Joe Biden, um, you know, he said, God bless him, but he's an old man um, and, uh, you know, nobody should hold that against him, but we should all recognize that people at his age are vulnerable in their health. And if something happens to him on the health front, um, uh, it's not clear we've set ourselves up to have an uh, obvious, easy fallback. I think it was a profound mistake um, not to encourage a primary uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, Not because I think, Donald, uh, that Joe Biden shouldn't be the nominee. I do think he should be the nominee. But I want to know who's clearly the second-placed person in the Democratic Party. And I would have loved to see a you know race uh, with uh, um, Gavin Newsom, um, Kamala Harris, um, you know three or four other Democrats, um, where the people could begin to see them and begin to signal like who who are the strong Democratic candidates, because if something happens to the president, um, it's not clear to me that the vice president is an obvious candidate to be the Democratic nominee in twenty twenty four. Um, And it's not clear to me what the mechanism is, uh, given we've decided not to have real primaries to pick who that person is. Um, So I think, you know, what the hopeful story is, nothing dramatic happens on the Democratic side. And Republicans funders are recognizing they just need to avoid the down ballot slaughter that, um, that a Donald Trump candidacy on the top would bring.
0: What do you say to political junkies and history buffs who look at, the 1980 campaign for instance i think that was the, the last time the democrats were you know the incumbent party in the white house and there was a significant challenger in the form of ted kennedy uh, the president of course at the time was jimmy carter and they say well that actually weakened our chances against reagan in the fall and then you look at 1992 pat buchanan goes up against the incumbent republican president george h.w bush and he appeals to Many of the folks that are now finding themselves MAGA supporters today, social people who are solely um, focused on social issues, the changing of what they see as American culture as they know it. Um, And and they say that that actually weakened Bush's chances against Clinton in the fall. Now, to your point that there should be a Democratic primary, you, you know, you yourself were a candidate for the presidency in 2016. Uh, against Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley and Jim Webb. Um, What is your response to to those that say that a primary would actually be detrimental to our our chances politically? And if you could also shed light on the no labels movement, um, who would listen to what you said and would say, well, that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're trying to offer a third choice. We're trying to offer uh, another option for the American people who are dissatisfied with both the leading contenders and the major political parties.
1: Yeah you're you're absolutely right historically that when these campaigns were set up as attacks on the president they weaken the candidate they weaken the president and you know i'm not sure formally how to frame this but in some sense i think this is a race for the vice presidency that we should be thinking of like who it's it's clear who our number one is and you know, just like in the Republican side, nobody's willing to say that they wouldn't support Donald Trump. Nobody in the Democratic side should say they're not willing to support Joe Biden. But who's going to be Joe Biden's running mate? Um, and, you know, maybe it's Kamala Harris. Uh, um, but um, but even if, it's, uh, even if it remains Kamala Harris, we ought to have a clear sense of what the p- people in the Democratic Party think about the range of alternatives. Now, that might be too complicated. Um, I, I'm, I'm i could be persuaded either way but i am anxious about the uncertainty but i'm not uncertain about the no labels movement look uh, this is a complete fraud it's a complete fraud the no labels movement sets itself up as a reform movement but it is anything but a reform movement um, it's a dark money movement that has done an extraordinary amount inside of Washington. I mean, it's done good things, but it's also done an extraordinary amount in Washington to make sure money reform didn't happen. There was a audio recording leaked of a conversation where Joe Manchin was the honorary chair of a call with a bunch of funders of the no-labels movement, and they were talking about how they were taking steps to block filibuster reform because filibuster the power to filibuster is an enormous weapon in raising money and making money effective inside of Washington. Um, and so they were strategizing about how to make sure filibuster reform didn't happen. And because filibuster reform didn't happen, we didn't see the Freedom to Vote Act, which was Joe Manchin's bill, pass past the Senate. Um, and And so it, you know, and I, I went to the I went to no Labels launch event in in New Hampshire. Um, and Joe Manchin and um, uh, uh, was you know there and um, and uh, the you know presumptive candidate, but he didn't declare himself as the candidate. And I and I read their book, their Common Sense Policy Guide, sets itself up as like reforming uh, the system. And when you get to the democracy section, there's not a single word about money in politics. Not a single word. And this just continues the the trend of no labels from the very beginning. Because at the very beginning, people said when no labels stood up as this great reform organization, super. What are you going to do about money and politics? But the leaders of no labels were some of the most aggressive and most successful money lobbyists inside of Washington. So this is a complete fake uh, reform movement. Um, And what we know for sure is if they stand up candidates in this next election, um, against in the elections between Biden and Trump, the most likely outcome is to help Trump um, beat Joe Biden. Uh, and maybe that's what they want. They don't say that's what they want, but um but I think they're just not doing their sums right.
0: You know, I, I asked this question to Chris Matthews two weeks ago on the show. And I want to ask you the same question. what What makes you think that Joe Manchin sees himself as the answer? To the dissatisfaction of many folks who are disillusioned to politics, when he has been the sole face of obstruction for, you know, the Democratic's priority list. You mentioned the, the you know, the, the voting rights bill that was that never came into fruition. Um, you, you you think about the Green New Deal that was, you know, that shrunk down to what became the uh, Build Back Better, and and and, and even that um did not meet the level of expectations that many Democrats had hoped for why is Joe Manchin in his mind the the answer to the dissatisfaction that many people feel I mean he, and then when you look at the what he has done he voted in favor of um the inflation reduction act which which surprised and angered many on the right uh including Mitch McConnell um after his meetings with Senator Chuck Schumer so he's not appealing to Democrats. He's not appealing to Republicans. Who is he appealing to? In your belt?
1: Well, here's the first fact about Joe Manchin: he would not be reelected as senator in Wisconsin, in, uh, West Virginia. So this is not going to happen. Um, so you know, you don't have to be a psychologist uh, to begin to recognize how the mind wanders. When you like have that reality standing before you. So, you know, he could retire. Why not? He's got a nice houseboat. He could just go move on the houseboat and like travel around the coast to be a great life uh, for the last 20 or so years of his life. But if he's not going to retire, this is the obvious next move. Like present yourself as the savior of the nation. Like only I am smart enough. To both anger Democrats and Republicans. And that's what we need in Washington somebody who angers both Democrats and Republicans. And, and it's like, what are you talking about? You know, Joe Biden is the most consequential president we've had since I think uh, LBJ, um, maybe Richard Nixon, who, as much as we hate Nixon, did uh, a bunch of extraordinarily important things. And he's been effective he's done exactly what the no labels movement says we need to be happen. He has worked with Democrats and Republicans to find um, agreement to pass fundamental change. Like he, is, he has enacted real legislation. So when I watch these no labels people talking about, oh, they never get anything done. We need a president who can work with both sides and get stuff done. I'm like, you mean like Joe Biden? Because that's exactly what happened here. And when you say to Joe Manchin, what have you done to actually produce real change through your skill at getting both sides uh, angry with you. The answer is nothing, nothing. I mean, he's bent over backwards to benefit the um, carbon monopoly um, so that, you know, climate change has been slowed on his watch. Climate change uh, legislation, the IRA was extremely important, but even then he's done steps to inhibit some of the most important elements of that reform. Um, So no, I mean, you know, the, I've not been a big supporter of term limits in my life, but I'm more and more coming around to the idea of um, uh, both age limits and term limits. You know, there's just a certain point at which you ought to say, go home and, you know, if you're 65 years old, you can't be elected to office. You can't be appointed. And I, I say this, you know, I'm almost I'm getting up there. I'm an old guy myself. But I just think at a certain point, these people lose all perspective. You look at the gerontocracy of the United States uh, Senate and, and you're like, wh- what do you guys think you're doing? Like, how do you think you can represent America when you don't even know um, what 80 percent of America knows because you're just so cut off, surrounded by the sycophants who are, who are supporting you in office because they, give, they have their own sense of power. So I, I think you know, there's a lot of reform we gotta to get to and, uh, and, and making it so this kind of ideology of individuals um, can be displaced with an ideology of ideas. Uh, and we can start talking about what's the right thing to do, not who is Superman and how do we elect him? Because only then can we get to some uh, progress in our democracy
0: you know, advocates of, you know, keeping soft money in politics may argue that limiting soft money restricts freedom of speech and association and that individuals and organizations have a constitutional right to express their political views and restrictions, restrictions on soft money uh, contributions could be seen as curtailing these rights. They may argue that soft money is often donated to political parties, not directly to candidates and supporters of soft money might contend that it's a way for individuals and groups to support parties general activities such as voter registration and issue advocacy without directly influencing a specific candidate and then they may argue that campaign finance laws require the disclosure of soft money contributions which means they're not entirely hidden from public scrutiny and they may argue that this transparency helps voters make informed decisions in your view how does soft money undermine the transparency and anti-corruption goals of federal campaign finance laws in light light of these arguments?
1: Well, first, let's just be very clear about one fact. Um, The existing system allows all sorts of money to remain dark Um, because though if you or I give money to a super PAC, uh, our names will be listed as donors to the super PAC. Uh, If an organization which is a C4, which is a certain kind of tax structured organization, gives money to a super PAC, that organization is named, but we don't know who the donors to that organization are. So if you want to hide your money going to a super PAC, you give it to a C4, and then the C4 gives it to the super PAC. Now, on the inside, everybody knows what happened. It's not like there's any secrets in Washington. But from the outside, we have no way of knowing who's influencing what. So first, it's not a transparent system. But second, you know, I am not as radical as many of my friends are about this issue. Um, I actually do believe people should be able to spend whatever money they want on their own speech about any candidate or any issue they want. I'm not uh, advocating in what we're doing right now, overturning Citizens United or Buckley versus Vallejo for that matter. Um, and so the Supreme Court has been very clear that when you are speaking, when you are spending your money in a political context, there's almost no reason why um, the government has a legitimate interest to restrict that spending. And I'm not fighting that. We're talking about contributions, contributions to candidates or contributions to committees. And what the Supreme Court said in Buckley versus Valeo and has repeatedly said every single time was that if there's a risk of quid pro quo corruption, then yes, there's a free speech interest on one side, the interest to contribute or associate as you want. But there's also a compelling state interest to avoid the actual or appearance of corruption. So like with candidates, uh, with contributions to candidates, um, I might want to give a friend running for Congress $10,000. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm Not allowed to do that um, because there's a risk that I would do that in exchange for something. Um, or that people would look at it and say, oh my God, he took $10,000 from Lessie. He probably wants copyright reform or something like that. So there would be a perception that there was a uh, corruption there. And the Supreme Court has said, those risks justify limiting the amount of money I can give to my friend running for Congress. Well, it's the same thing with a super PAC. Um, if, I, if you know, somebody supports a super PAC because that super PAC is fighting for environmental uh, regulation, they might want to give $100 million to that super PAC. And they might have no desire to corrupt anybody in that process. Um, But because we do know there are cases, for example, uh, the United States government said Robert Menendez, Democratic senator from New Jersey, engaged in a quid pro quo with a Florida uh, billionaire uh, and said in exchange for giving money to my super PAC, I will do you favors because we know that there are those cases, anybody can believe that these contributions to super PACs involve the same kind of quid pro quo corruption. And if it does, then the state ought to have the power to um, avoid that appearance by limiting the size of the contribution. Now, you're not that much worse off as a rich person. You know, It's like, okay, I can't give my money to the super PAC, but I'm still free to spend my money. So I'll hire my own agency that puts up ads that says, please vote Joe Blow because I like Joe Blow or I knew him in college, whatever. So it's not like you're silencing anybody. You're just avoiding a relationship that we know inherently creates this risk of corruption because we've recognized the government has should have the power to assure that its government is not corrupt. But that's what most people think our government right now is basically flatly corrupt.
0: Now, there there are those who may say, you know, the focus should be on regulating hard money contributions to candidates, which have stricter limits and are considered more direct forms of support. They might contend that tackling corruption should prioritize the money that goes directly into campaigns. What's your argument for tackling both hard money and soft money in political campaigns?
1: Well, again, I want to target a particular kind of soft money. So your question before was really... Um, well-informed in the diversity of uh, uh, soft money um, deployments. And my own view is I have no desire to limit soft money going to parties at all. I think political parties are the one critically weakened institution in our political system because of campaign finance limits. And I don't support those that weakening at all. So I, I think parties should be allowed to raise their money um, just as easily as super PACs are able to raise their money, and they're not now. Um, But what I'm talking about are contributions to committees that create the same kind of risk of quid pro quo corruption that exists in contributions, hard money contributions to candidates. And in both cases, people ought to have the freedom. uh, I mean, sorry, legislatures or the people in an initiative ought to have the freedom to limit those contributions so that we limit the risk of this corruption. Um, and there's been this artificial line drawn between contributions to campaigns and contributions to independent political action committees. And and we're trying to surface just how crazy and wrong that artificial line is. So as we talked about the last time I was honored to be on your podcast, we've launched a, uh, um, a video competition where we've raised $50,000 for the winner. So if you're out there and talented, Listen up, $50,000 for the video that most effectively demonstrates the logical mistake at the core of the decision that gave us super PACs because it is a kind of two plus two equals five mistake. Kind of once you see it, you're like, wow, these are you know federal judges, they're not, they're not charlatans, but somehow they made this mistake, it's amazing. But because of that mistake, we think that there's a difference in the corruption that's risked by large contributions to an individual versus large contributions to an to a independent political action committee. And while there might be differences of degree, there's no difference in kind. Both of them raise exactly the same risk of corruption. And so both should be regulable by the state under the principle that there's a compelling interest to avoid actual or the appearance of corruption.
0: 2024 is gonna be an election the likes of which no one has seen before in American history. We're gonna be dealing with a president uh, who left office running for another non-consecutive term against um, an incumbent. And it's going to be laced with so much legal battles swirling around that former president, Donald Trump. Georgia's ongoing investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the election Results in 2020 as a significant legal and uh, political matter. Uh, how does the influence of money in politics intersect with legal investigations like this, and and what reforms are needed to ensure impartiality in such
1: cases? Well, I think it's an important question, especially at the state level, um, because you know at the state level um, many of these offices are elected, and I think there's a risk, a worry that um, these state officials use their uh, the prominence of prosecution in order to raise money. So I, in general, am concerned about that. And I'm not as concerned about that um, when you're talking about a federal prosecution. Though, I am the first to say that we've seen many cases of overreaching by federal prosecutors as they pursue justice at whatever costs, feeling that their own righteousness entitles them to uh, invade uh, and violate the rights and and, um, justice uh, for others. So I'm not saying anybody is an angel in this story, but I do think that the federal system, because it's not tied to campaign funding, is less of a problem than the state system. Um, But in this next election, I I agree with you that the most likely um, scenario is Trump versus uh, Biden again. Um, But I don't, I'm not sure that these prosecutions are actually going to leave Trump sufficiently unscathed to become the nominee. Um, these are very serious charges. Uh, and, um, you know, whatever uh, the next president can do in, in pardoning uh, Trump um, for federal crimes, he can't do anything in pardoning Trump for state crimes. Um, and surprisingly, the, the Georgia uh, governor, Kemp, though he was a a vicious partisan early in the cycle that got him elected, you know, in the fight um, uh, against um, uh, Abrams was I think vicious and, and political in all sorts of ways, you know, in 2020 was a very important um, backstop to um, the potential unraveling of that election in a way that that would have thrown the nation into a civil war. So I think he's shown real integrity and he's shown real integrity and. in standing up uh, uh, against this move in Georgia to remove the prosecutor, um, because you know he rightly recognizes that's kind of banana republic uh, behavior. Like, okay, if the prosecutor's crimes um, are uh, not ba- have no basis in facts, then let the system work. Like, let the trial happen. Let Donald Trump be uh, exonerated by a jury of well, they're not his peers, but at least a jury. Um, and, uh, but, uh, the idea that you would have politicians come in and say, oh, we're going to stop a prosecution because we know the facts and, you know, we've evaluated enough to know there's no crime here is, is really embarrassing, um, uh, for America in the world stage. So, um, I think, uh, is a real chance that we've got, um, real consequences that he's going to have to face. And none of this is even talking about Jack Smith's incredible, uh, um, uh, prosecution. So um, there's a significant chance, more significant than something happening to Joe Biden, that he's going to be dislodged. And then the question for the Republicans is, who's number two? And, and many of those candidates are obviously playing that strategy. They're not attacking Donald Trump. They're just trying to be number two when Donald Trump stands has to stand down. Um, and uh, um, we'll see whether that works.
0: You know, there are many folks who look at Folks like Trump Vivek Ramaswamy, and and they're concerned. You know, even in 2016, we had Carly Fiorina. Um, we we have folks who are not part of the political class launching themselves for the highest office in the land, with very little, if any, knowledge of the Constitution or appreciation for the limitations of power on executive authority, as outlined in Article Two of the Constitution. In your view. How would the fight for campaign finance reform mitigate the likelihood of the rise of candidates like Ramaswamy and Donald Trump in future elections?
1: Well, this is an issue that's very close to my heart, because when I decided to try to become a candidate in 2016, um, you know, I had to, in my own um, thinking, reckon with the fact that in a certain really fundamental way, I hadn't had the experience of the office. Um, and um, and so that's why I framed my candidacy as a candidacy focused on achieving a single fundamental result. Um, and I think this is politically stupid and naive to have made this commitment, but what I said was, when that result was achieved, I'd stand down and my vice president would become president. And so that was a way of saying, look, I am on the outside and I'm trying to become a candidate for this office because I think it needs an outsider to achieve this result. But once this result is achieved, let's go back to um, a system um, you know, w- run by people who have plenty of experience on the inside. Um, now, I think that the other candidates like Trump um, and Vivac um, are also appealing. Um, I mean, certainly more appealing to the outsider um uh game because i think so many americans see this as a broken system and the natural result uh to that view is okay let's find somebody on the outside who can come in and fix it now unfortunately though none of the you know trump though he originally attacked super PACs and money is corrupting the system had no intent of doing anything to fix that corruption indeed he was the most base kind of corruption we've seen in politics um, since the 19th century. Um, and uh, and, and Vivak has no strategy or thoughts about how he's going to reform the system. So these are people presenting themselves as supermen. You know, I can come in, superheroes, I'm going to come in and fix the system because I'm just better than everybody else. That's just crazy talk. It's just the most naive view of how the system works. Um, it's one thing to say, I have, you know, <laughs> the strategic uh, engagement that's going to shift enough to make the system work. Uh, I thought that's what I was trying to say. But the idea that somebody thinks that, yeah, I succeeded in business, and, oh, by the way, um, neither of them succeeded in business. But, uh, yeah, I've succeeded in business, and I'm going to come forward and use that skill to succeed in America is just ignorance speaking. And, unfortunately, for many Americans – that ignorance speak is actually effective.
0: So professor, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but if you could shed some light on the work that you're doing in the contest, uh, there's a $50,000 prize, of course, and the competition uh, launched by your organization, um, it, it was it's gonna ask Americans across the country to create compelling videos explaining why, contrary to conventional legal wisdom, super PACs can be, re- can be regulated. Um, and it's it has launched, September 4th, that was four days ago. Um, and you've managed to get Jason Alexander, a renowned television and Broadway actor uh, who's known for his role as George uh, Costanza on The Seinfeld Show. Um, how did he get a, 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 you know, involved in this? And if you could also shed light and more details about this competition and the requirements.
1: Yeah, so Jason, one day, way back in like 2011 or 2012, I was sitting in my office and somebody knocked on the door and Jason Alexander walked in. And he said, uh, I, uh, I'm i Jason Alexander. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> really, you're Jason Alexander? And he said, yeah. And I think this corruption in money and politics is the worst. And what are we going to do about it? And it's really since then, he has been a tireless advocate. Um, basically, every single thing we've asked of him, he's done to try to wage this uh, this fight. Um and so this is just the latest. And it wasn't a surprise to me he said yes, but of course we're grateful. Because, it, because the, the key thing is to break it out of the ordinary political space. I mean, and that was the whole idea of this video competition. The lawyers have tried for 13 years to get the law right, and we have failed. The politicians are exploiting the law as it is, and they're not working to get it fixed. They have failed. So we've got to rally a new group of um, talent, a new group of people to come in and make this as clear as it possibly could be so that nobody credibly could continue to assert that uh, the First Amendment, that James Madison meant that super PACs be part of our political system. Um, And so our competition we first raised what I thought of as a pretty outrageously large prize, $50,000 for the best video, um, so that you might be able to get into you know, film schools or into law schools, or there's a lot of film uh, writers on strike right now out in, in Hollywood, a lot of creative talent who've never once thought about this issue or never thought about it in a very practical way, who might take some of that talent and turn it to this question. Like, how do we make it so obvious that only a crazy person would continue to assert what most lawyers think is the law right now? Um, and so it launched four days ago. We've had a lot of uh, really impressive pickup of interest and in people engaging and sending us questions and beginning to the process of uh, developing and submitting their, their, uh, 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 um, their videos. And it will be finished by um, Election Day. Um, and after election day in the middle of December, we will uh, release, or the judges will release. Jason's one of the judges. Um, the um, the winners, and um, you know, my hope is not just that we have the best video, but w- but we have a library of great videos that you know appeal to the widest range of Americans or anybody. I mean, we've we've said anybody in the world, or the universe, can enter, including AIs. If AIs want to prove themselves, they're they're perfectly invited to make a video. Um, I, but we can we can have a diverse range of this so that it's just impossible to continue to believe um, what most lawyers now believe. Now, you know, we'll never exterminate the, uh, the bad idea. Um, you know, there are people who believe the earth is flat. Um, there are people who believe that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, whatever. Like, you're not going to get everybody. But we've got to make it just as crazy to think, uh, James Madison meant for super PACs as to believe that the earth is flat or that uh, Husay- uh, um, Saddam Hussein had uh, weapons of mass destruction. And if we can get to kind of 80% of Americans are like, or 80% of those who are like participating in understanding this issue are like, yeah, that's a pretty stupid mistake. Then it's going to be harder for the lawyers to continue to defend the status quo, which has given us now 13 years Of these corrupting institutions called super PACs. Um, And that's our effort. Now, this is step one. Step two, we're in the middle of right now, which is to try to tee up a challenge um, through litigation. Um, And that starts with getting a law passed, which would then be challenged by the supporters of super PACs. So we're talking to people in Maine about that opportunity. Um, It's possible we would. Um, If that's not feasible, we would try to get a legislature like Vermont to pass this legislation. Um, But I love Maine. I mean, I love Maine because everybody who's been to Maine loves Maine. Um, But I love Maine because if Maine were to take this issue up as an initiative and pass it overwhelmingly, which they certainly would, then it would be Purple America passing this uh, overwhelmingly. Um, You know, if Massachusetts did it, then it would be, you know, blue state, Massachusetts. And if uh, Vermont did it, it would be blue state, Vermont. But if but if uh, uh, although it would be better in Vermont because the governor is Republican. But if Maine does it, it would be harder for the rest of America to just ignore it as a kind of left wing um, uh, conspiracy. And that's what's necessary. We have to make it easy for Republicans and Democrats alike to say, look, we disagree about a lot of things. But there's no reason we should disagree about this. No reason why we should accept a democracy where the tiniest fraction of the 1% have enormous influence in what our policies are, because it's not good for Democrats and it's not good for Republicans. So we're fighting to make this obvious truth, conventional truth, and then nonpartisan conventional wisdom. We believe in democracy. We should believe in a democracy where the tiniest fraction of the 1% don't determine what our democracy does.
0: And again, for our viewers, if you could just, um, you know, remind us, where can we send the videos? Where can we submit?
1: So if you go to uh, the website, cancelsuperpacks.com, obviously go to Equal Citizens, uh, there'll be a chance to click on that link too, but cancelsuperpacks.com. You'll be given all the steps you need to take. And basically, what you you know, you're given the resources you need to understand the issue. Um, There's a video I made, uh, which is about 11 minutes long. Uh, Jason referred to it in his video as a rather mundane um, account of the argument. So, all right, my video is rather mundane, but you know that's the point. So I have an 11 minute account of like what the issue is and what the mistake is. And then you basically watch that and study it and think about it and think creatively about it. And you're like, how do I take the mistake part, which isn't 11 minutes, it's just a very small sli- slice of that, and make it like completely obvious. Like, what are the graphics or what is the you know, sitcom series or whatever? What does it do? What do you do to make it so nobody leaves your video thinking, oh, maybe the DC circuit was right. So you leave it thinking, wow. Jeez, those judges are humans too. Um, and then um, basically the as the, as the rules say, you post it on some site tagged in the right way so that we can then collect the videos that are posted everywhere. And then after you've submitted this uh, the uh, registration, you get included in the list of the videos that are going to be reviewed by the judges and um, uh, and eventually they'll come up with the winner of the of the videos that have been submitted. So I'm I'm hoping we get an extraordinarily large number of really creative videos, but at least if we get one great one that then becomes um, familiar to at least everybody thinking about this issue, that would be a big success.
0: And Professor Lessig, before I let you go, I do have to get your thoughts on this super PAC, the leaders we deserve. Uh, Of course, this is a super PAC started by David Hogg, one of the significant and and, um, and most prominent members of the March for Our Lives organization that came as a result of that tragic day in Valentine's Day, 2018. Um, He has been a prominent uh, progressive figure in a lot of different movements. And, you know, we alluded to it a a little bit earlier. This super PAC was launched directly in response to the concern of many Americans about how, you know, many folks who are up there in age, are taking prominent roles in government. Um, This political action committee, The Leaders We Deserve, is a hybrid political action committee backing candidates under the age of 35 running for federal office and under 30 running for state office. The group, which plans to primarily focus on state-level races and a smaller number of congressional matchups, will target open Democratic-held seats in the upcoming 2024 primary season. What are your thoughts about this political action committee? Is it the answer? to the concern that was raised earlier about the aging of our political leaders and if not how else would should young people get involved um, in light of the fact that many of them would find themselves running against opponents who are heavily backed by well-oiled political action committees um, if they are to roll up their sleeves and get involved to tackle this issue that we've been discussing
1: well, first, uh, you know, David is one of the most important uh, political innovators on the American scene today. Um, you know, who knows whether but for that tragedy he would be. But because of that tragedy, he is an extraordinary figure. I've had the privilege of um, getting to know him briefly um, when he's been a student here at Harvard. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind of the integrity of what he's doing and uh, the 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 good world that his efforts might bring about. I'm also somebody who doesn't believe in unilateral disarmament. I want to end the world where there are super PACs. But until we've ended the world when there are super PACs, there are elections to be won and issues that we need to be fighting for. And so I don't, uh, I don't um, criticize someone for using the system as it is to achieve the results they think they want to achieve. Indeed, 10 years ago, we launched a super PAC to end all super PACs. Um, we raised $15 million um, to try to run candidates to test the salience of this issue in, in, uh, in districts around the country. So, um, so I think what he's doing is important. And I also certainly support the idea that the gerontocracy of American politics has got to end. Now, I do think that if we removed the power of super PACs and we spread public funding through, for example, vouchers through the political system, the inherent advantage that incumbents have um, would be weakened. Um, so, you know, why is it people like Diane Fe- Feinstein can get reelected and reelected and reelected? It's not because she's the or she was, and nobody would assert this today, but was the most insightful politician in California. It's instead because when you're there long enough, you've built enough relationships with money that money will be there to back you regardless. So you begin to build the, um, the war chest um, uh, that makes it impossible for anybody to challenge you. Well, if we change the way money worked, it'd be easier for people to challenge you. If there were public funding available, um, especially through vouchers, which you, you know, everybody gets a voucher, and then candidates go out and they try to appeal to voters to to give the candidate the vouchers, then you'd have a democratic process for raising money that would make it easier for people to win based on exactly how many people like their ideas, as opposed to how many lobbyists are willing to continue to pump money into the coffers of the camp- campaign in the many many years that they're incumbents. So, I think he's attacking a very serious, important problem to attack. I wish him luck um, and uh, and uh, and you know, I hope he's successful. But I want to make it so you know such packs in the future, targeting candidates um, uh, don't exist. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be um packs for other reasons, you know, because the logic of this quid pro quo corruption is tied to candidates. So imagine you, created a super PAC that was trying to fund a ballot measure around um, uh, clean energy, there'd be no way that the argument we're making could justify limiting contributions to that ballot measure PAC because there's no candidates involved in that ballot measure PAC. So this is not eliminating um, for good or for ill, all big money in politics, but it is destroying it in the context where it's most likely to have a corrupting influence on, the candidates. And, um, and um, you know, I, I would accept that restriction both for candidates I support and for those that I oppose.
0: Professor Leslie, this was a treat. Thank you so much for being a part of episode 118 of the Political Mike. It's been Thank you, honor- Mike. It's been an honor to have you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this very insightful discussion. With that being said, that's going to conclude episode 118 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of The Political Mike podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at @thepolymike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.